Hello and welcome to another episode of the Crobecast, the show that brings you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm Tess. And I'm John. And we are doing something we probably should have done a long time ago. Between Tess and I, we have five microbiology-related degrees. Five. Not a lot. I mean, that's kind of a lot. <laughs> okay, maybe a lot. I don't know many other couples that have five microbiology degrees. Okay, we're overachievers. <laughs> <laughs> we're obsessive. Well, anyways, we do have five microbiology degrees. So, Oms, we are super jazzed about the microscopic world. Yeah, when we went to the UK, the first thing we had on our list was to go visit the Broad Street Pump, the birthplace of epidemiology. Believe it or not, we did a photo shoot with our giant microbe cholera, who we call Chloe, in front of the pub as drunk guys gawked at us. Uh, well, we'll post some pictures at some point on social media so you can see. We also just had to go see Alexander Fleming's penicillin strain, and of course, Dolly the first cloned sheep. It was a very science-driven field trip to the UK, I gotta say. Not for leisure. So I think that gives you a little insight into how we plan our vacations. <laughs> at any rate, we want to share with you why we're obsessed with microbes. And maybe get you excited about it too. Hopefully. Microbes affect you positively every single moment of every day. Every moment. In fact, only 1% of bacteria will actually make you ill. And we are always talking about the 1%, but we all hate the one percenters. But what about the other 99%? What are, what are they doing? Most of you won't notice, but many aspects of your day-to-day -day are made possible only by microbes. Every moment you have is a micro moment. Get it? I get it. <laughs> Today, Tess and I are going to each share with you five of our favorite ways microbes affect us. We don't know what the other one picks, so hopefully we don't have any repeats. But first, what are we drinking today, Tess? Today, we each chose our own <laughs> favorite microbe drink. Mine is, of course, wine. Not only has wine provided me with a steady income for, what, the past six, six years now? <laughs> uh, it also gave me my PhD, and like the pop of a cork is just like the best sound ever. Pop of the cork or the pouring of the wine? Ooh, second best sound. <laughs> and I'm drinking a beer, and tonight I am drinking Samuel Adams Cherry Wheat. It's not my favorite, but it's been a while since I've had it. It's really nice. Yeah, so this brings us to my first thing. I don't think, did you order yours based on favorite to least favorite or just five best microbe facts? Just five. I didn't put in any particular order. Me neither. But my first is fermentation, which is mostly wine, like I said, is my favorite, but also beer and mead and yogurt and kefir and so many other delicious foods. Sourdough. Oh, I love me some sourdough. Oh, that's some good stuff right there. When we went to San Francisco, we got so many sourdough <laughs> loaves. I thought we were going to vomit, but it was so worth it. Fermentation is one of the oldest ways humans have been directly, although unknowingly, interacting with microbes. What is it? Mead is 3,000 years old? Uh, even older. I think the earliest that they've been able to find is like 5,000 years BC. Which is a long time ago. And mainly, this is through Saccharomyces cerevisiae. And a lot of people believe that Saccharomyces cerevisiae originated from, or the one that we culture all the time is originated from grapevine skins because grapevines are amazing, regardless of my biases. 
But Saccharomyces cerevisiae, they also don't know a lot about the wild Saccharomyces cerevisiae because of how much it's been domesticated essentially by humans to make all of our favorite alcoholic beverages. But beyond that, we have used Saccharomyces cerevisiae in a number of pharmaceutical agents as well as genetic agents. So I just wanted to highlight a few of them here. Do you know any? I know that it's responsible for making things like insulin, human serum, albumin, and hepatitis vaccines. Yeah, not only that, but the species Saccharomyces cerevisiae has been linked to a number of other beneficial effects including inflammation, affecting immune response, and can even absorb mycotoxins. Do you know what first it has? Uh, no, I don't. So it was the first eukaryotic organism to have its genome sequenced, the first GMO approved for a food application, and the first synthetic eukaryotic chromosome, and is the first eukaryotic genome to be fully synthesized. Wow. That's a lot of first place trophies. So many first places. Saccharomyces cerevisiae needs a trophy cabinet for that one. (laughs) What's your microbe beneficial moment? I went with, they help give us nutrients. Well, that's a good one. Yeah. Which nutrients do they give us? I'm just going to list off a couple. So we'll start with vitamin B. Vitamin B is a water soluble vitamin, so we can't store it in our body, which means we need a more constant supply and we can get it from our diet. But there are many microbes that produce it for us. And there are eight types of vitamin B, such as like... Eight? Yeah, so... Why are they so many? Don't we have more letters in the alphabet? Yeah, but... Don't they only go to K? Yeah. No, it goes to K. So, I'm going back to like high school. So, bear with me. I believe it's because when they first discovered vitamin B, these these subcategories were too similar and they weren't able to differentiate it Mm. and as uh, technology got better they realized that there were differences in these vitamin b molecules so then they just made different types so we have ones from b1 to b12 confusing yeah they you know there's different bacterial species like bacteroides lactobacillus bifidobacterium and even more Well, that's easy, right? Vitamin B for bacteroids and bifidium bacterium. Yeah. B for B. B, B. And so there's a lot of microbes in our gut that produce all different types of vitamin B for us. So what does vitamin B do? Well, we need it for the production of certain neurotransmitters uh, for our brain development, breakdown of macromolecules, proper immune function, DNA replication, even more. I thought they were also linked to energy. Yeah, so if you notice, like, energy drinks will have a shit ton of B12, actually. It really gets you, gets you amped up. Beast mode! Hello, everyone. I just want to take a second from our episode to clarify something. Vitamin B doesn't actually provide energy to us. It's actually used to help us utilize energy nutrients, like sugars. So that energy boost you get from your pre-workout is from probably from a rush of glucose heading straight to your brain. Well, that's all. Now back to our episode. Also, they help us make vitamin K. Well, they don't help us. They make it. We don't. And this is actually fat-soluble vitamin, and you may have used it before for things like sunburns. I definitely have used it for sunburns. Yeah, it's actually got a soothing feeling to it. I fry like a french fry (laughs) on a hot summer day at McDonald's. It's all that Irish blood in you. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And it's estimated that about half of our daily required vitamin K is made by microbes. Who makes the other half? Uh, we eat it. Oh, from plants or something? Yeah, from our diet. Actually, I think, no, most of it we get it from meats for those that eat animal meat. So does that mean all my vitamin K is made by my microbes? No, there's vitamin K is made by plants, but I'd have to look into this. I think it's made in less, lot lower concentrations. Mm -hmm. Get back to us if you know about that fact. But anyways, what does vitamin K do for our body? Well, pretty much we need it to make clotting factors, and it's also used for bone metabolism. Interesting. And microbes also break... Wait, are bones metabolized? Yeah, so it's like every seven or eight years, you have a new skeleton. So you have... What? Yeah. Uh, How do you not know this about this before? So you have two cells in your bones. They're called osteoblasts for building and osteoclast for collapsing. And so constantly... The osteoblasts are laying down all the framework for your bones, like all the calcium, vitamin C, whatnot. And the osteoclasts are breaking down older, old bone. And so it's like every seven or eight years, technically, your bone is completely new. Whoa. Fact of the day. Yeah. And so another thing that microbes do is they break down carbohydrates, which are plant polysaccharides. These are complex carbs that we can't break down on ourselves and they're fermented we're going back to fermentation love fermentation by bacteria that produce f oh, sorry short chain fatty acids and there's three types there's acetate which is used by uh fat cells cardiac cells and skeletal muscles and is incorporated into cholesterol butyrate which the lining of our colon uses for energy, up to 70% of energy needs come from butyrate. And it's also incorporated into cholesterol. And then propionate, which is involved in producing glucose. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. I feel like that's everything. And also, their microbes are involved in protein and fat metabolism. But I decided not really to go into that because, you know, our body is pretty good at protein and fat metabolism anyways. So I decided to focus on things our body really can't do. All right. Yeah. So what's next for you? So we will move from talking about how microbes... Don't grab my wine. Sorry. <laughs> Not sorry. We will move from talking about how microbes help you digest things to how microbes can help plants which you eat. So this is a concept known as biocontrols, and it's using natural enemies to reduce diseases. So biocontrols are not necessarily always microbial, but there is a very strong movement right now to look at microbial biocontrols. So like humans, not all microbes get along with each other. Some downright destroy others. If you can find a microbe that doesn't harm the plant, but kills or competes against the pathogen, then you might have a natural way to manage the disease. I love the idea of using beneficial microbes to help combat diseases in all aspects of life. It's what I got my PhD in. So it's kind of something near and dear to my heart. So my PhD was in grapevines. And so in a vineyard, all vines are typically clones. They have the same genetic makeup. And they are planted in the same area and so are exposed to the same conditions and thus should be under this similar disease pressure. Like if one, if one plant gets it, you would expect the plant next to it to also get it because they're in the same conditions. Right, they're genetically similar too. Yes, but when we look at a vineyard, 
we can see that there's differences in the plant. Some will show severe disease symptoms, while others will be completely healthy. And so we looked at how the innate microbiome might shift during a disease progression and looked at how some plants would succumb to the disease while others right next to them would remain healthy. There's a lot of similar research out there and other plant systems. Besides grapevine, one that comes to mind is Huanglongbing in the citrus industry. But I also wanna talk about another example that actually includes birds and insects. Ooh. So this and Hawaii, who doesn't like a good Hawaii story? Oh yeah. Love Hawaii. So another example of this can be seen in Wolbachia with Wolbachia in Hawaii. Let me explain. So Hawaii was once home to over 55 species of Hawaiian honey creepers. What are honey creepers? Birds. They're like finches. So like, oh. think of Darwin's finches. About half of them are extinct. Can, oh, no. you, can you guess why? Uh, is it microbial-related? Well, eventually, yes, but... What about food supply? Yes, but who causes the food supply shortage? Humans? Yeah. A lot of it is from when humans kind of took over Hawaii and they did a lot of building of things, which was destroying of habitats and encroachment on the bird's land. So a lot of them ended up going extinct. A number of others are endangered. And another reason why these birds are going endangered is malaria. Malaria? Yeah. So I'm sure you've heard of malaria before. It's a mosquito transmitted disease that we get as humans, but many other species also can get malaria. I actually didn't know that other species got malaria. Yeah. So there is a strain of malaria it's, it, or a strain. What is, causes malaria? It is a parasite. Boop, boop, boop. It's a parasite. And so this is a pesky mosquito disease. So these mosquitoes transmit what is known as avian malaria, which is caused by Plasmodium relectum. I feel like that is a spell in Harry Potter. It does kind of sound spell icon. Plasmodium. What was the other one? Relectum. Yeah, Plasmodium relectum. And death to the birds. So malaria is not a very fun disease. Uh, it will cause death to a lot of avian species. And what we can do to help this, so this is an example of a microbe fighting a microbe, is have Wolbachia help us. So where does this all, where does Wolbachia fit into this? There are many different strains of Wolbachia and in two mosquitoes mate with different strains, their eggs won't hatch. Really? Yeah, so scientists are sabotaging the mosquito population by releasing male mosquitoes with the wrong strain of Wolbachia and thus curbing their population before they get too large and destroy the endangered bird species. Huh, that's an interesting way to go about it. Biocontrols for the win! <laughs> so. Beat that! Well, mine is mine is kind of biocontrols too. <laughs> <laughs> Except it is for our body. Well, tell me about it. Yeah, so microbes defend our body either by treating or preventing other infections. So a lot of the time it's due infections are due to an imbalance between the bacteria protecting us and potential pathogenic microbes. A lot of these microbes 
aren't there to cause infections. They just either see an opening to get more nutrients or they somehow get into an area they're not supposed to be. Which we call opportunistic. Exactly. So looking at our skin, uh, Steph Arias, uh, you probably heard of like MRSA. That's a, a specific anti antibiotic resistant staph. And it could cause symptoms such as like atopic dermatitis, even to cellulitis or boils. Mm, yummy. And there's a team out there that has demonstrated that they were able to significantly reduce atopic dermatitis. And they use commensal bacteria like staph, uh, Staphylococcus epidermidis. Is it really going to be considered a commensal bacteria if it's doing beneficial qualities? Doesn't that make it no longer a commensal bacterium? Uh, I don't know. I think it does. These are just labels that we put on bacteria. And commensal, by definition, means it is not doing either harm nor benefit. That's true. I mean, maybe they'll have to update this definition because we see Staphylococcus epidermidis on our skin all the time. Yeah, I hate the labels commensal, pathogen, and symbiont. (laughs) I really do because it all depends on the situation. In this situation, this commensal, that was air quotes, commensal bacteria is not a commensal anymore. It becomes a symbiont. Yeah. We label things because it's easy, not because it's right. And so this staph species was able to inhibit Staphylococcus aureus by making an antimicrobial peptide. Do you know what the antimicrobial peptide is? I do not. Were they able to isolate it? I believe they were. Oh, okay. Cool. Another spot to look at is the gut. I mean, when it comes to microbiome... The gut's where it's at, yo. Like 90 plus percent of the time, it's going to be gut related. So a good example of this is uh, Clostridium difficile or C. diff infections. And so this is a more and more common infection happening. And it pr- this bacteria produces a toxin that kills intestinal cells, causes inflammation and diarrhea. Are we going to talk about some poop pills? Uh, kind of. Love me some poop pill stories. So people can get C. diff from the environment, but there's also a significant population of people that naturally have it where they, where it resides in their gut. And a healthy gut microbiome can keep it at bay. You know, it lives there. It's not overgrowing. It's not causing any problems. However, antibiotic treatment can wipe out your gut microbiome or a big portion of it. And this really allows C. diff to utilize all this free space and it grows out of control you can treat it with some nasty antibiotics but what else besides antibiotics can you use to treat it poop pills poop pills or fecal transplants and so these restore healthy gut microbiome and have a success rate of over 85 percent Whoa. Yeah. What's the success rate of antibiotic treatment? Uh, you know what? I did not look that up. Because they often get relapse, right? And they'll do the antibiotics and cure and then immediately relapse because there's nothing in their gut. Yeah. So what will happen is you'll have instances where they treat with antibiotics. It brings down the cell count. It stops and then it grows back. Or it's in their, it's in the environment. They catch it again. Like you said, these are some nasty antibiotics. So if you're treating with antibiotics, you're not restoring that microbiome. You're still knocking it down. And we need our microbiome. Yeah. 
And so fecal transplants are used particularly in reoccurring C. diff infections. So I find that really cool. And we can't end a C. diff story without mentioning Cliff, the C. diff sniffing dog. Can you tell us about Cliff, the C. diff sniffing dog? I love Cliff, the C. diff sniffing dog. He was trained to sniff out C. diff. And so he would go into hospitals. And if he came near you, it meant that you were going to have C. diff. So you were not in for a great time, but they found out sooner than the patient actually getting C. diff. And they were he was pretty accurate. I don't know if he was the first, but he was definitely the first dog I heard of, of dog sniffing out pathogens. And since then, we have HLB sniffing dogs for citrus trees and COVID sniffing dogs for COVID, which I just think is kind of amazing that dogs are able, that they have this sense that is so intense that they can smell pathogens what the what (laughs) dogs not just for criminology so what's your next pick okay so now we will go from the gut to space Ooh, we love space so i want to talk about the final frontier and this one might get a little metaphorical i suppose but it has some true science in it as well so I really love the idea of thinking of microbes, and I think a lot of people think of it this way, that microbes define the limits of our reality and shape our imaginations. Whoa, that is deep. Yeah, you don't get much bigger than that for a microbe moment, I think. No, not at all. So we talk about extremophiles quite a bit on this podcast. Just this year, they found that Deanococcus bacteria can survive in space for years. I think the count was three years. Holy shit. That's a long time. Previously, we didn't think anything could live out there. Now we have evidence that something can. That's amazing. We published a blog post. One of our first blog posts on microbigals.com was on midichlorians, which is, of course, the little microbial species that live in Jedi's and make Jedi's more Force-sensitive. Right. And so even in Discovery, which was the latest Star Trek spinoff, was it the latest? No, I no, think... No, Picard was after Discovery. Yeah, and yeah. Discovery's still going on. But they did <laughs> use a tardigrade as one of their story arcs in the beginning of the Discovery series. So we are seeing even in sci-fi and pop culture that these microbes are helping us to imagine new universes. Yeah. Which is incredible. And then, of course, we have species in real life. We have species like Planococcus, which is... Planococcus hylocrophilus, which can survive in extreme cold, which is minus 10 degrees Celsius or 14 degrees Fahrenheit, pretty cold. While microbes like Thermocrinus likes it real hot, up to 89 degrees Celsius. Wow. That's 192.2 degrees Fahrenheit. So these are microbes that define what life can withstand. Now, are these on like the extremes? Yes, so these are the extremes of the extremes. So Thermocrinus um, is known to come from Yellowstone. Maybe we should make a new uh, thermostat and zero is Plantococcus and boiling point is Thermocrins. Yeah, that'd be pretty good. Yeah. Microbe thermostat. That'd be (laughs) fun. And we can have all the other microbes and their ideal optimal. Oh my God, this is going to be great. (laughs) Well, John, I think this one's going to be a two-parter. What do you think? I think it may be a two-parter. We just have so many things to talk about for microbes. We wanted to keep it short, but it's really hard to when 
you like microbes so much or learn about so much about microbes. Yeah, so we really hope that you learned something special here in part one and join us next week for part two of how microbes affect you. Thank you listeners so, so, so much for listening. We really do appreciate your continued support. You can send us an email at microbegales at gmail.com or you can add us on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, or all the meds at microbegales. That's M-I-C-R-O-B-I-G-A-L-S. If you've learned something new, we encourage, nay, we challenge you to share it with a friend. Bye. Bye.